Hello, listeners. As you can hear from my voice, I am profoundly overexcited. I'm in full fanboy mode today, to a greater extent even than the multiple times we've had Damien Lewis on to talk about books about the SAS during World War II. Today, I wish I could do a drum roll, we are going to talk to Christian Cameron, and I hope this is as interesting for you as it is for me. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber, 1961-2020 to Welcome to Blind Insights, a podcast we call A Haphazard Guide to Living, hosted by philosophy master David Olney and myself, a philosophy student, Tim Whiffen. I'm joined by David Olney. How are you, David? Very excited. <laughs> and we're also joined from the other side of the world. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Christian Cameron. You know, I'm excited to be here too, just because Dave's so excited. I'm glad that my excitement is infectious across multiple countries. And oceans. That's important too. We like oceans. I know more about how scary it must have been to be on the ocean now, having read your books about the ancient world and what it was like to go to sea, going, uh, where's the other side? It's a big thing. You know, a lot of that actually came out of growing up in a little fishing town and literally going out with a buddy in a rowboat on on the Atlantic Ocean and then suddenly going like, wow, it's really big. We were like 13 or 14 just rowing along, looking around. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and we've entered a fog bank and we don't know where we are. Cool. This is going to be great and very adventurous because although I was an officer in the Navy, uh, being on an aircraft carrier with GPS is very different from being in a trireme. Yes. 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 Trireme little hits things, goes smash, everyone drowns. Not good. So we should start with something you said just before we started recording, and this surprises me and amazes me. And I think it's a really important thing to say is, you know, audience, you may have seen uh, Christian's books under a different name, which is Miles Cameron, but that's when he writes fantasy. And I have to say that I'm one of the people, I started with the Traitor Sun series, and it was awesome. And then the new book came out in Against the Gods, Against... Christian, what's the name? I'm trying to remember everything tonight, and I'm going to forget something. Against, Against all gods. All it's gods. okay. I ha- Dave, I have 47 books. I do not expect anyone to know all the titles. That's good. Me. I probably know about 35, so I'm doing sort of okay, but not all of them. So the whole point is, you know, Christian writes amazing fantasy, which more people talk about. And he said to us that more often than not, no one wants to talk to him about his historical fiction. So to all those people who haven't talked to him about his historical fiction, I'm like, what's wrong? You could have interviewed him twice. This is even better. So historical fiction, Christian, how, where, why did the start come from? Look, I saw on your about page that you did history at university. Were you already addicted by then or did the addiction get you later? Or when did you come to love the ancient world? Well, that is a mouthful. So I, I always have to tell a story. So when I was a kid, the backfield of our farm was a late 14th century Seneca First Nations village site. So there were archaeological teams digging it almost every summer of my wow. childhood. And my uncle, 
Donald and his best friend, Charles Ray, a former OSS officer who jumped into Germany repeatedly in German military uniforms and thus was fascinating to me. Um, the two of them dug both there and 30 other sites, and they worked with professional archaeologists. They were amateurs, but that was very much part of my childhood. And I've seen this with my own daughter, picking something out of the ground, a piece of pottery, an arrowhead, proves to your young mind that the past happened. It's not a story, you know, like the stuff, yeah. it's right there. So that's like one branch. And then, uh, you know, it sounds like a joke, but my wife and I were, we weren't married yet. We were looking for a place to go on our honeymoon. And we joked to each other that we wanted two things, beaches and castles. And we sort of ran through the world going like, who has beaches and castles? And it turns out that was Greece. Uh, and until then, I had, you know, I did Latin in university, not Greek. Uh, I had been mildly interested in ancient Greece, but one look at the reality of Greece and all the archaeology and all of the temples. And then I started reading Herodotus, which I think is like the greatest story ever told. And suddenly everything was about Greece. And I went back to school and did ancient Greek. And, um, you know, here we all are. Uh, and that leaves out my passion for the Middle Ages, which actually started with a book by Barbara Tuchman called A Distant Mirror. And oh, that's has a great a, book. Yes. Has an, has an element of comedy to it now, because yeah. I now know that about two thirds of what Barbara Tuchman said in that book is not really exactly true the way she told it, but it didn't matter. It bit me hard. And then yeah. the final thing I want to say, because I have lots of stories, is um, when I was, I think, 11, my dad took me to uh, to see a movie called The Three Musketeers with Michael York and uh, Raquel Welsh and Richard Chamberlain. It's the old version, but it has absolutely brilliant fight scenes that still completely stand up because they were made by William Hobbs, who was probably the greatest fight master Hollywood ever produced. And um, I, it, it was quite a moment in time. All the costumes were accurate. It's not like the movies they make now. They were really very interested in getting a lot of things right. And the screenplay was written by George MacDonald Fraser, who did all the Flashman books, if you hmm. know Flashman. And the combination of those things entranced me, and that really got me into historical novels. So, you know, my dad would just hand them to me because, of course, like most dads, he wanted me to read. So I was just sort of handed historical novels, and I read The Three Musketeers, and then I read Dorothy Sutcliffe, and I read uh, Rosemary Sutcliffe, sorry. And I read like all the classic English stuff and a little bit of the French stuff, and then I started on American historical novels, and then that's sort of how we got here. Well, that's a great first story to contextualize it because there you have that thing of touching history, which in Australia is such a sort of amazing thing because, you know, human presence in Australia is so old. But for most of us living on the thin band of the coastline of urbanized space, you know, we have to go so far and be shown the signs of how long people were here. And, you know, there's rock art in so many places in Australia, but if you don't, you know, if you're not guided to it, you won't know it's there. I I, I share this experience, Dave. I, I I said that my uncle and his friend were Iroquois-related archaeologists, but, you know, you can spend all day walking a field where definitely there was a First Nations village, and I mean a big village, 3,000 mm. people, palisades. You can spend all day and you can find one bead or one arrowhead, mm. whereas 
I don't know if you follow my Instagram feed, but you can stand in a lot of places in Greece, and I mean a lot of places, and look down in one camera angle, in one photograph, maybe a meter by a meter, there will be 300 pot shards wow. from from 3,000 years worth of history. You can just go like, Bronze Age, Bronze Age, wow, it's a, I've never found a Neolithic, but I'm sure I could if I just stood there long enough and you know poked yeah. with my foot. The, the depth and complexity of human habitation makes North America, and I haven't been to Australia, I'm sorry, but makes North America just seem very different. And, you know, I have great interest in, in fact, First Nations and Aboriginal habitation. They had fascinating civilizations. But when you look at when you look at Greece, like, and I've seen the same thing in Israel, you go like, wow, people have not stopped breaking pots here for 9,000 years. Yep. Yeah, it, it's a thing to know there was one culture and it evolved gradually because the environment stayed quite similar and the population stayed low. But there in Greece, you've got a relatively hard environment, a significant number of people. You've got the ability to move via the sea in multiple directions to other people doing similar things. So it really is, in a sense, a micro version of globalization very early. Well, the Mediterranean is globalization. Yeah. Yeah, And I am wary of saying too much because I am aware of my own ignorance. I don't know as much about India and China as I know about the Mediterranean, but I suspect that the Indian Ocean is another globalization. It's just not cultures that I know as well. I was in uh, Bahrain and Dubai in my military service, and then I was down in Mombasa, and I realized that you know, the trade winds just moved the DAOs up and down, or they used to. Maybe there yep. are no DAOs anymore, but in my youth... Just move the Dallas perfectly so that you can take a cargo all the yep. way down the coast of Africa and then take the cargo all the way back to the Bay of Bengal, back yep. and forth and back and forth in relative safety. And that's yep. like the Mediterranean too, right? That's just yep. globalization. Yep. Yeah. Again, there are still Dows and they're still doing exactly that. And it's the reason why piracy in that bit of the world will go on forever. Because again, there's always rich pickings. So how from the love of history... Did you end up with a naval career? Was it a case of you're into history and you suddenly realize the only question you can ask with a love of history is, would you like fries with that and needed an income and a career? Or were you leaning towards the military career at the same time as you were becoming fascinated by history or or you know, having sort of that person who jumped out of planes with OSS into Germany, that was another earworm that had got you and you had to try your own version of you know, a uniform. Yeah, kind of the latter, David. Uh, I, I'm I'm going to say I think I always needed to try it for myself. And I don't know how Australia is, but in the States, and this is very different from Canada, by the way, and I'm Canadian now, and I'm kind of a lefty socialist voter now, which I definitely was not when I was 19 years old. Yeah. But my dad had been in the Navy, had been an officer in the Navy. Uh, my uncle Donald was a bit of a war hero from the Second World War fighting in the Pacific. My grandfather served in the First World War. It's just a thing. I wasn't yeah. not going to do it. It was not, I, I don't think I, but none of them were careerists. They all just went and did their time and came back. Yeah. And this sounds very modestly braggy, and I don't mean it that way, but when I was at officer candidate school, I won a regular commission. I was in the top five in my class. Yep. And immediately that meant, oh, I don't have to be a reservist. I can be a full-time professional. And I kind of liked it. I, I won't, I won't lie because this is a complex subject, 
given the modern world. But uh, one year into the military, I was like, this is what I've, this is ideal. This is the, the, the best life I can imagine. And that can sound very off putting to some people. No, and our I, audience I just, are used to hearing it, so feel free to talk. So I've had the experience of always being blind, but having worked training Australian Special Forces and living in officers' messes and having the situation of being on day four of living in an officers' mess, training our most elite units to think faster, plan better, and just going, yeah, I could just kind of keep doing this day in, day out. Do I really have to go back to the normal world? So I don't know if you've looked at my science fiction novel, Artifact Space. I have it, but about, haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. It's about a person who's had a pretty rough life and suddenly find, finds that everything in the military is the opposite of her life up until that moment. Mm. That's not really me. I won't pretend I had a rough life. It's just I had a bit of that. I kind of went to the military and went, this is great. Mm. Um, and there were definitely things about it that were really weird. I was a you know, I was a uh, an East Coast elite. I had been to an elite university. I had intellectual ideas that were not always in keeping with all of the officers around me. But at the same time, really very family-like. I loved all the work. I really loved all the work. Like, I really got into it. And I was almost mm-hmm. instantly the squadron tactics officer. And I'm, I, you know, and I'm like, I get to actually devise tactics, like, mm-hmm. for real, <laughs> in the real world. Um, anyway, uh, I, I don't want to gush, but I really enjoyed the Navy. And I also want to tell this bit of the story. I had some great professors in university, like, uh, and I mean, not just great because they were great men or great teachers. They're also pretty big names in their field. Um, Para Zagarin is still probably known as one of the best Tudor Stuart England professionals history has manufactured in the 20th century. And uh, and Richard Kuiper is was uh, an American medievalist of the very fir- front rank who wrote fabulous books on things like the origins of idea of holy war and other very topical things. Mm. And um, both of them said to me because I you know I was I was being offered sca- scholarships to graduate school. I, I had a professor I won't go into details who had been a senior mid grade CIA officer in Vietnam. And who basically said, like, if you really want to understand history, you need to make some, Mm. you know, like uh, see history from the inside and you will have a non ivory tower appreciation of it. Mm. And and I will I will say that was fabulous advice. And I think I disappointed all three of my favorite professors by never going back to academia because I I love academia, by the way. And I wish they'd let me in without a Ph.D., (laughs) but I don't have time now. Um, Yeah, uh, but I. Totally agree with Paris Agrin. You, I feel like being inside the process is absolutely required to understand some stuff. And there's an area that we might not get to talk about today about I'm fascinated by the early Italian Renaissance. And I often hear even academic historians say, we can't really know what this interaction was between Pisa and, and Siena and Florence that made this happen. And I'm like, yeah, if you've sat in an operational meeting with George Bush and, you know, five other heads of state talking, you can actually understand how these attitudes evolve. And if you haven't, you can't. And there are things I read and things I think where I go, no, you've just never seen world leaders interact. So you imagine that it's like your high school, but it's not like your high school. Yeah. And even the dumb ones, and sadly, there are some dumb ones, usually have professional advisors saying, sir or ma'am we don't do that. You know, mm. like, that's great. Now that you've had your little hissy fit, we'll be backing away from your position. 
diplomatically because that that's going to serve no one. And no, we're not sending an aircraft carrier into the Black Sea, mm. no matter how much we <laughs> no matter how much we hate Putin. That would send a signal that would lead to things going. No, no, sir. Sorry. That's not what yep. we're doing. You know, like um, and and I think that that's I think it helps my writing. I have had people say, like, why doesn't this character do this? sort of big Hollywood-esque thing. And I'm like, yeah, world leaders don't usually do that. They yeah. they are restrained. They are restrained by their staffs. They, are rest- they don't get most of them. I leave yep. Donald Trump out. Most of them don't get to positions of power by being angry dicks. No. And, and sort of that was the problem I always had with academia. My preference as a young man would have been the military being blind, not an option. Ended up academia as the least worst option. Loved mm-hmm. the teaching, but hated the idea that the academics had that they understood the world. Yeah, because yeah, you know, the current it, world they didn't. They, yeah, things from history maybe, but then being around diplomats, being around soldiers, you go, hang on, there's a chunk of the real. Well, if you put all the chunks of the real together, and then some of the abstract stuff, then you start getting a more complete picture. And you've even had the more practical thing of actually seeing the power brokers. I. I'm just going to say, I, not to disagree with you, I agree. No, you can disagree with me. That's it, absolutely it, fine. But uh, I actually also believe in academia. Like, there's got to be balance, right? Mm. The guys and gals at the point of the sphere have an understanding, but they also have a very limited picture. Mm. And sometimes that's limited because of their training. Sometimes it's limited because of information being kept from them. Mm. And sometimes it's because they couldn't possibly understand all the things that are at stake. Mm. And then at the other end, and I'm just talking about the military and academics, academics are paid to have a broad view. And in mm. fact, one of the thing, one of the best things to me about academics is that often they're paid to have opposing views. Mm. Like I, I know, uh, uh, I know well a number of people in a local philosophy department, and I know that they basically, when they're new hiring, they're going like, no, we've already got somebody who does European hermeneutics. Let's get somebody who's like pr- from the radical mm. other end of the spectrum. And, you know, so that so that students will get both of those points of view. Mm. And I, as an intelligence officer, not necessarily as a military officer, frequently had extremely productive interactions with with intellectuals from academia because they knew stuff and mm. they knew stuff in a way that quite frankly, my brother and sister military professionals were mm. too busy to get those levels of education. And I, you know, like, sorry, little side story. Uh, I remember I was full of myself because I thought I was a brilliant pistol shot. Uh, and a buddy of mine who was a former Navy SEAL, he was back to being an Intel person, but he, he basically said, you want to see somebody shoot? And he took me to a shooting range where two SEALs were practicing with submachine guns. And I watched one guy put two rounds out of a 10 round burst into each of five targets mm. at about 30, 30 meters, like he was waving the nozzle of a hose. Mm. And I thought like, right, I don't know anything about mm. shooting. Okay. So yes, point made, uh, arrogance mm. defeated. But mm. my point is that guy spent a lot of time learning to do that. Mm. I know. Cause I do a lot of martial arts and I know how much time it takes to learn those hand-eye coordination things. Mm. He spent a lot of time on that. He didn't spend that time learning about the interactions between triads and playgroups in Chinese communist leadership. Mm. Right. And uh, so we need somebody else because, Mm. because before we send Bob to shoot people, 
we need to know exactly what people we're going to shoot. And we don't want to get that wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and you're talking and, about the area of academia that can easily be respected. What my experience was of the abstractionists who want to get it as far from reality so they can be experts in their own abstraction as possible. So you've just described the good version, which is the bit nearer to the middle. I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. I, I, I happen to dabble. I, I don't know if this will like end our, our interview, but I happen to dabble in philosophy. I think philosophy is very important. Mm -hmm. And philosophy mm -hmm. has a lot of people who want to talk about things that are of very little interest to me. But it also has a lot of people who want to talk about, like, how do you live a better life and how mm. do you live an ethical life? I applied and philosophy is astounding. If the abstraction can be linked to what could I do with that tomorrow or how would it help me understand the world I live in? Then again, yeah, we're moving back towards the middle of, you know, of using knowledge to in, enhance life or enhance decision making. Yep. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we're not so far apart. No, and I, we're not. I, you just experienced I, I just, the better middle version of academia, whereas I experienced the extreme of people who thought, you know, Derrida was the place to live. Yeah. All right. I, I hear you. But I, I just want to remind you that I'm also a person who is utterly fascinated in exactly how, like, English medieval literature worked in mm. the 1370s. I can go down any of those rabbit holes. Like, wow, what do women's headdresses look like in 1410? I'm your man. Let's go. Mm. I, I, um, so, so there are a lot of fairly esoteric parts of, like, gender studies that mm. I am immediately on board for because like uh, costume, bring it. I'm, I'm, yep. I'm, I'm <laughs> you can put that uh, in the book. Exactly. Or I can, or I can make a reenactment kit for my wife or my daughter, or, you know, like, and that is experiential and experiential um, is my way of experiencing history. And you just tapped into the key word that if all this thinking keeps being linked to the experiential, then fantastic then everything gets grounded again in a way that can inspire or inform uh and you know it, it abstraction is fine but the minute you can make it experiential again that's when it gets exciting that's why your books to me from the minute i started reading them it's like hang on someone who likes the big ideas the tiny ideas and the characters are actually quote unquote real the experience being described is from an experience of going what does that taste like what does that feel like how do you hold that weapon? How do you mount that horse? How do you do this thing? Which is so unusual to get proper experiential descriptions. And from the blind perspective, where most of the world is just about visually doing stuff, to actually having someone writing proper descriptions of things, you, know, you are very rare in your ability to write proper descriptions. I love your flattery and I accept it. Uh, but I, I'm going to say that I'm, I'm sure you know this, but when you're an intelligence officer, you take batteries of psych tests. Mm. It's just, it's like your everyday life. And mm. at some point, somebody said to me, do you know that you're an audio, audio listener or an audio learner, not a visual learner? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, I didn't know that. But, you know, like, I think I can learn visually. And then I realized that, anyway, yes, I think for some reason, I listen more than, my wife might not agree. Uh, Anyway, it helps me write that mm. the experiential stuff. I don't Sticks just in see words. It. You don't just see it. Somehow yeah. your brain's translating it into I could do a monologue with this, so someone else could share the experience with me as I'm experiencing it. Yeah, something yeah. like that. And 
something I say to young writers all the time is that it is a lifestyle and you need to basically put yourself into it heart and soul. So mm. I, I, I'm not kidding. If I eat something that is really interesting, I can give a direct example. I was just in Greece. I just came back from Greece, which I think you both know. Mm -hmm. And I, I literally stood in an alley smelling the smell of fig trees. It's not something we ever smell in Canada. We don't have any fig trees. Mm. And it's it's a spicy, almost cinnamony it's smell. It's a wonderful smell. And thinking, wow, Aramnesto smells this all the time, and I don't think I've ever mentioned it. So mm. in in so in book eight, for sure, we're gonna have some fig tree smells. Like that it's it's yeah. a full-time job, right? Yep. In a weird way, it's a full-time job. And it is a an error on my part, because I've been to Greece for years, to never have described the smell of a fig tree because it's such a great smell. Yep. And I assume that anyone in the ancient world walking up a hill and smelling a fig tree was not just smelling the fig tree, but like all that meant about a sweet dessert, something that will store for sea travel, yep. all those things. Yeah, like I grew up in a country town where along the riverbank were huge old fig trees deliberately planted when the town was settled in the early or well, the mid 1830s. We were settled in 1836. So probably around 1840, the trees were planted. So huge in that amazing smell. Yeah. And yeah, again, I can describe it to people for five minutes and be thoroughly happy. And they go, oh. <laughs> and yeah, it's that difference of living in that world of everything has to have a, a description with words to go with it, which again, for me, is just so natural, which is you know why your descriptions of things just like I can get lost in your descriptions in a way where other people I then have to go and read another book to go I need to fill in the gaps for their incomplete descriptions I think my life as a reenactor made me want to write experientially yeah I think like it was like well I've had these cool experiences and now I want to share them with you um, so when did the reenacting start like what kicked that off when I was 14 my uh my boy scout group leader the american bicentennial was starting you guys mm -hmm. remember the american bicentennial i know and, what it uh, is yeah my my boy scout troop leader said hey guys there's this thing called reenactment and we could all like make revolutionary war uniforms and go participate and literally every one of us went like wow that's great and somebody once said like why was reenacting better than boy scouts and like it was just the same as Boy Scouts, except there were girls and guns. <laughs> um, so of course it's better. <laughs> um, uh, it was a, uh, it was great. It was like an introduction to paramilitary life, mm. and most of the adults participating in the United States in the bicentennial were either Vietnam vets or craftspeople who had been hippies, and. One of the most interesting things about those campfires in 1976 and 1977 was that literally there were guys who had been draft dodgers and guys who had served two tours in Vietnam dressed in the same uniforms, talking shit to each other. If you'll pardon, I, I probably mm. shouldn't have said that. On no, there. you're welcome to but, say whatever you want and we don't mind. And it was very interesting. Like I was mm. 14. I don't know if you remember being 14, but to sit there mm. listening to grown men argue whether the war in Vietnam had been legitimate or whatever, and then mostly letting it go because that's not what we were there for. Something no. that I feel to people today could could learn a lesson from. Mostly just got, kind of going like, but anyway, I really like the way you've reproduced your first Maryland coat. That, yep. Where'd you get those buttons? Um, yep. And at the same time, we were just experimenting. They were just experimenting. I was a kid. 
um, with uh, with what we now in reenacting call immersion. Like mm. we're going to we're going to go for three days. We're not going to change our clothes. We're not going to drink a beer. We're going to be like soldiers, and we're going to march from X to Y. We're going to make a camp. And that was all kind of new, except, of course, all the military veterans were like, ah, this is easy, except we don't have Kevlar and we don't have mm. Cortex. We didn't have any of those things then. But they were sort of inventing immersive reenacting as we went along. It was mm. pretty fascinating. And we had guys and gals who had done the American Civil War, which was the first sort of giant reenactment. Mm -hmm. I guess the English Civil War in England, Brigadier General Peter Young was sort of the inventor of immersive reenactment and that was that was the the ecw in in uh in the uk but anyway uh it was very interesting and very impactful i was 14 i mean i call upon you to remember being a teenager mm. um and you know we'd have these battles with 2000 guys and gals on a side and <laughs> compared to everyday life of being a 15 year old that was pretty damn impressive mm. you know it wasn't as paramilitary. We did a ton of drill, way more mm. drill than close order drill than you'd ever do in a modern military. And yet it wasn't all that paramilitary. I remember my first company commander who was a Vietnam vet and had been an officer in Vietnam and who was about the most laid back human being. He's like, guys, this is a game. Don't take it seriously. Everyone, no one is going to die. This is, don't, it's not worth getting mad for because we'd have to wait around. Mm. And, and I got a lot of tastes of how real military veterans thought about a lot of things. Like uh, I was all into like, you know, the glorious bayonet charge and they would be singing, why are we waiting to the uh, to silent night? Because they'd been made to wait for an hour in the sun. And I was like, ah, I guess this is how real soldiers are. They're not that excited about no. the whole war thing. It's great because once again, what an incredible way to start your experiential learning. I was just, well, okay, this is already something I don't get to do if I'm 15 any other way than being involved with this group of people who we've all agreed to suspend normal to do this cool thing together. And that at the moment, a lot of differences can be put aside and a lot of commonalities can be found. Yep. That's it, – it's so remarkable as you're sort of unpacking how all the pieces fit together, why and how, you know, you can write the novels you write. It's fabulous from my perspective because, again, having gone through the Traitor Sun series, having started with the fantasy ones, and then thought, oh, I need to read another book. Oh, yeah, okay, I've got to remember that You know, when Miles Cameron is writing sort of historical fiction, it's Christian Cameron. All right, look, oh, there's this whole series you know, set in you know, ancient Greece. Oh, okay, I'll start the one on Alexander. That's exciting because I sort of know bits and pieces about that and then got utterly hooked and then realized that, you know, Ptolemy makes an appearance, you know, in the Tyrant series. I'm like, ooh, so I've got to read The Long War first and then Tyrant. And I, I think, what did I lose, Tim? Nearly nine weeks going through both series where all I could talk about when we were podcasting was which book came next. <laughs> I, I'm literally rubbing my hands together with glee because nothing pleases an author more than hearing that his whole backlist is being read somewhere in the world. Gotta say, I, I find it interesting you started with Alexander because I think it's the best book nobody's ever read. Um, the best of my books that nobody's mm. ever read. And uh, by far the hardest book I ever wrote. It's all about like digging inside myself for all the worst parts of my personality and and then playing them up because I don't like Alexander. I don't think he- No, he's an me. awful, awful creature. Um, and- uh, yeah, and I, I from time to time go. Also, 
I got a terrible review. I love telling this story. I got a terrible review from the big Toronto newspaper uh, on it, written by a young man who about three weeks later, he came to my book launch. About three weeks later, he he called me or called me up, texted me, and he basically said, like, I'd like to meet up. And I said, like, why? I didn't even understand your review. And he said, yeah. well, you know what I didn't know when I wrote that review? I didn't know that this was all true. So his review basically said, like, this is an incredibly boring book. Who would make up this many battles? <laughs> like, oh, dude. Man. It's Arian, so real. It's, this is what happened. And yeah. it's a funny thing. And I'm trying, I, I am writing the last pages of the sequel to Artifact Space. And Artifact Space is my sci-fi novel that mm. in some ways has been the breakout book of my career. Like, Okay, and that I, I, I'm going to have to listen because I have it there. And I keep, it's sci-fi. I'll get through all the ancient Greece stuff first and then decide where to go next, you know, in your, but, your back catalog. But the point I'm trying to make, and I assume you have some uh, serving and veteran uh, listeners to your show, hmm. the tr point I'm trying to make to readers and listeners that is very hard without losing their interest is how boring continued action can be yeah. and how wearing it is to be tense and anxious for 170 consecutive days. Yeah. And one of the things that sort of made the Alexander novel stand out, and I got a lot of complaints about it, is like, yeah, there's so many battles. Yep. And I and I in I am not a great warrior. I cannot imagine what it would be like to fight four times a year, five years in a row, mm. hand to hand. I think that with picket duty, raids, skirmishes, uh, not for me. I don't, I'm not sure I could handle that level of constant contact. But those guys did. You know, mm. Alexander's survivors did. And yeah. then, you know, the, the ugly fact is that the pikemen who were facing the elephants how many of them were actually the pikemen who had started off from Macedonia? Like he took staggering losses yeah. over time. Anyway, trying to write the banality of day-to-day -day tension and the, you know, you, you said it early on leadership. I'm fascinated mm. by leadership. Mm. I'm fascinated by the men and women I have met who have it and by how many don't have it. Mm. And I don't believe it's in natural leaders. I don't believe in born leaders. I believe it's all training and what people take to be natural leadership is excellent social skills yep. that uh, it's like social IQ that allows them to look at one guy and say, need to treat him this way, need to treat this other gal a different way, because I can't, I, I can't, I mean, fairly, but I, what will lead one person will not necessarily lead another person. And that is complicated and requires complicated decisions and energy. You need energy every day to face your troops and go like, now we're going to do this. And I need yeah. to explain that to some of you. Anyway, uh, I'm, I'm off my topic, but. No, the... no, no. They're all, they're all very related bits. And yeah, as you were talking about Alexander, it reminded me that the book that kept popping in my head as I was listening to Peter Noble, you know, read your version of Alexander was the junior officers reading club. And I cannot think of the young English officer's name who wrote it but he ended up being the youngest captain in the british army for like 150 years and he and originally his platoon and then his company because he ended up being the most senior officer left because of their levels of casualties in afghanistan i think did something like 80 days straight in 2006 or 7 in afghanistan right. that and sounds 
terrible. It was. But having listened to that book and then listened to his description of going home on leave and going to nightclubs and getting in brawls and doing huge amounts of booze and crazy shit, um, it's like, yeah, as I was listening to Alexander, I'm like, okay, yep, this relates most closely to this. And this is why this book is amazing, because it's capturing the fact that at the time, it's just a crushing thing that affects you forever. And if you've got the wherewithal when you're a leader, you find a way to get through and make sure as many of your people get through as possible. Day by day. But, yeah. you know, l- listen, I haven't done 80 days in combat, thank God. No. But I but I do know, and this is, I think it's something that civilians, I just want civilians to understand it. So my aircraft carrier, first cruise I was ever on, I'm a very junior officer, my aircraft carrier had a nice, very comfy six-month cruise with like Khan and Monaco. And then uh, about two weeks before we were supposed to go home, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And mm-hmm. we we dashed to the theater. We were the first carrier on station. And basically, it was obvious we weren't going home soon. Mm-hmm. And my squadron skipper, who was a million times decorated Vietnam vet and a lot of by my day a lot of uh, senior officers hadn't served in vietnam and weren't veterans he immediately said to some of us officers sort of his staff i want you to think through how we can ameliorate the damage this is going to do to people's family lives hmm. and we're all like what we're we're going to shoot down iraqis and he's like no no we're going to start having divorces in the next month yeah. because because People at home had an expectation of when the carrier is coming back. Mm. And it's very, very harmful to family life to be away for six months. He says, well, you know, a lot of you aren't married. If you're married, you'll know what this means. Mm. And that was really true because we were, I think, 90 days late coming home. Mm. And the the effect on officer and sailor family life was staggering. Yeah. And I uh, like and. That's we're not even talking casualties. We're not talking any of that like gore of war stuff. We're just talking about the reality in the 20th century of mm. what it's like to be a full-time professional military person and the long-term effect of just being away an extra 90 days. Not even seeing your friends die, mm. nothing's on fire, you didn't lose a limb, just an mm. extra 90 days away from home. Uh that was a huge lesson to me. And you know, we did lose people, we did have stuff happen. I'm I'm leaving that out. I'm just saying like mm what you say is exactly true and then it's actually just almost banal like mm. the effect of military service and by the way I, I don't mean to make it all about the military i've seen people in diplomatic service and people in sort of peace corps like situations in exactly this have many of the same problems yeah um yeah you look daily, at your doctors without borders going to somewhere when things are bad and suddenly yep. they stay a hundred days longer, and it's a similar level of trauma, a similar level of numbness, a similar yep. level of dissociation, and they come yeah. back and go, "I don't fit, and you don't make sense anymore." Yeah, all of that. And yeah. uh, you know, I knew some some uh, Medicine South Frontier nurses in our rear area was in Kenya, and we were in Somalia, uh, who were just they could have been. World War II U.S. Marine snipers. They had, yeah. you know, the the dead eyes, and they didn't tell stories. They just drank their beers and went to bed. They didn't want to really hang yep, out, interact. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and that was, yeah. Anyway, anyway, it's it's a it's a, as an old colonel of mine used to say, it's a dirty business, boys. Mm. Um, 
it, it, it can be. And so why do I want to write about it? Uh, you know, there, I, I, I'm putting that question in your mouth. Why? Why write about it? There's so many cool things you could write about instead of war. And I would answer that there's two reasons, and they're both slightly moralistic, so I hope I don't sound like a high-minded dick. But on the one hand, I would like people to understand not just the fun parts like the sword fights, but the effects on families, the trauma to civilization, the trauma to whatever, to to look at those from the sort of big outside of a novel. Mm. And on the other hand, I would like professional force users, cops and soldiers and so on, to think about the ethics of what they do. I am talking about Canada and the United States. I don't know Australian culture. But in Canada and the United States, I feel like we've marginalized professional force users as sort of well, we don't want to think about that. No, we've much. done exactly the same thing. And we we look at their actions, some of which are terrible. I'm 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 not gonna whitewash, you know, repeated killings of young black men who are unarmed and stuff like that. But we we tend to push that off in a in a brown colored box and go like, mm. well, that's terrible. But you know what? I don't have to look at homeless people as I go to work. So, mm. you know, someone has to do that awful job. And it's like Indian sweet sweeper sweepers. They're like a lower caste. We just don't worry about them. And then they themselves close ranks and go like, yeah, we're a separate part of society. And that's all wrong. Um, as I have told people at cocktail parties, and I will get in big trouble for saying this on a podcast, but it, it, well, I, I, this is what I say here. Every time a Canadian sniper in Afghanistan pulls the trigger, that's you. You pulled the trigger. Mm. If you vote in elections and carry a passport, you are part of the military complex. Mm. You, 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 like, And if you voted against it, cool, but that's not how democracy works. Mm. Um, and I totally respect pacifists who really act on it. I don't necessarily respect cocktail party pacifists. Uh, you know, like if you benefit from the low cost of oil and you drive a Volvo, don't complain to me about it. Anyway, I, I, I won't go too far down this road, but I would like the, the violence users to also understand that they should be bound by ethics. Mm. that they shouldn't think of themselves as shut off by society. I'd like mm. society to recognize their sacrifice. Flip side, I'd like them to go like, uh, and this is really why I write the medieval books, but also Aramnestos, is like, maybe military. there should be military intellectuals like Romando Montecuccioli in the 17th century who look at it all and go like, all right, this is what we will do and this is what we won't do. And mm. these won'ts, we won't ever do those. In my day in the intelligence world, torture was right off the table. It mm. was not entertainable. And some people have decided that they can take the gloves off and then it's okay. And I would say, yeah, that once you do that, that's who you are. Mm. Like, I, I think that there should be rules. And I have heard military professionals argue that there are no rules in war. And I'm like, you're, you're joking. You don't mm. know anything about military history. You know, there there are rules in war. War is a cultural artifact like dance. Mm. It's no different. Different cultures fight wars for different purposes, which is why we get mismatches like Afghanistan, mm. where one side has jets and one side has a handful of snipers or roadside bombs or whatever. Those mismatches are cultural. They're not technological. Mm. I mean, they mm. can be technological. And I think there should be more military intellectuals. Uh, this gets back to my academic thing. Mm. I think there should be people who, instead of going like, oh, war is bad, Go like, well, war is a fact of human existence. Let's ameliorate it. Let's look at how we deal with it. Let's, um, and I have heard these people often in special forces units, very thoughtful people going like, whoa, how do we keep this down to a dull roar? 
how do mm. we avoid civ civilian casualties? Mm. Anyway, that, uh, those are the two streams of why I continue to write like military novels, as mm. I would like people to think about these things. And again, that is, again, the reason I used to teach civil military relations, you know, and, and give Samuel Huntington's warning from the soldier in the state. And, you know, his warning was in 1953 or 57. Don't remember anymore. Essentially, the civilian elite and the military elite were beginning to not understand each other. And that was right. going to be very bad. And then, you yep. know, also looking at it from the perspective of, well, there's the ethics, the virtue ethics that you train a military to. And then there's rules of engagement. And how do you balance those two things? Virtue ethics are what every society in the world has come up with to keep war from becoming you know, utterly destructive. And then you have rules of engagement that don't strictly fit with the virtue ethics and are more contradictory and harder to make sense of. And you can't carry through your life in every situation. So people have to question which way they lean between the two. I had not realized how very much we would agree about this. You, yeah. you, I, I will read your book. Um, oh. That 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 is very well stated, and I I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I and having experienced some rules of engagement, I would say one of the things that used to annoy me, but this annoys me in almost every walk of life, is like, why aren't these being explained? Yeah. It's one thing to tell a young marine, uh, you may not fire unless you're fired upon. And he's sitting there going like, are you kidding me? There yeah. are people with AK-47s standing 40 feet away. I'm not going to get the time to return fire. I'm thinking of Mogadishu, Somalia in 1993 yeah. or four. But actually, the U.S. Marines are pretty good about this. It's much better to say the civilian population's view of us is very fragile. Yes. Your first thought as an NCO should be, believe it or not, how do we preserve the good opinion of the civilian population? Your second thought should be self-preservation. Second. And I'm sorry, but this is what you're paid $39 a day for. You're, mm. you're, you're going you're gonna to die for our diplomatic efforts. But like the honesty of that is appealing to good NCOs who at least mm. go like, okay, I get what the game is. You know, We're playing a game where we're trying to win by being the better people. Hmm. Yes, actually, so, that, that is what we're trying to do. So again, if you dive into the period you're talking about in Mogadishu, of course, it's the period where General Krulak writes the famous strategic corporal article about mm -hmm. exactly what yeah. you're talking about. And yeah, teaching that to 19-year-old Australians with no experience or connection to the military or war becomes a, you know, gives them a head spin. Here we have yeah, it was the military thinking of how differently we can not use force. That and that anyway, that was my world for a while. And mm. and that is what I think about even when I'm writing Greek hoplites, mm. because be, I mean, the dichotomy to me of writing history and I'm pretty serious. I, I like to think I'm pretty serious about my history is they were nothing like us. They're just like us. Yes. I believe both of those things at the same time, which probably leads to some interesting debates inside my own head. Well, to me, that's exactly how I hear Aram Nestos. Aram Nestos is the kid who, you know, in Australian terms, has gone the fast entry track where within a year of joining the Australian Army, he's going through selection and can end up SAS or 2 Commando. And mm -hmm. he's going to learn to be a hero real fast and then realize that with becoming a hero comes trauma 
no understanding of where you've ended up, all connections to the normal world gone, and now the decision to come back from the brink and try and become a leader and put the pieces back together while not losing your hero status. I, I watched some guys do it. And I had the example of my uncle. And my uncle wasn't the nicest person. He was great to me. I'm, I, I'm, but he, he, um, he was a person who, in many cases, found it easier to use violence than to have a discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and that had been his life. So he, he just. <laughs> he was habituated to what worked for him. He scared the crap out of me and two of my friends when, as teenagers, we were openly discussing a young man who had not assaulted but dealt badly with a girl we all liked. And my Uncle Donald sat down with us and said, we could kill him. I can tell you where to put the body. I can tell you how to do it. <laughs> yep, and he was now, deadly serious and calm. It, in retrospect, I look back and think maybe he was just trying to scare the shit out of us. But mm. at the same time, I think... Uh, there's a, a 15th century Italian condottiere about whom they used to joke that he had killed more men than the plague. And I, <laughs> I, I'm not sure my uncle was in that status, but often when I, I would play this game with myself where I'd go like, what, what is Aramnestos going to do in this situation? Well, what mm. would my uncle Donald have done? Mm. <laughs> and then you have to think you want Aramnestos to go through several more books. So you really don't need him going quite to that brink. No, no, Nearly, exactly. but not quite. A, a, a gentle, workable sociopath. Anyway, yeah. that's, you know, the term killer of men came out of the Iliad. Mm. And because Ares, war, is the killer of men. Like, it's mm. actually a, just one of those Greek phrases. Mm. But it's, it's worth noting that the Greeks were all about war, and yet at the same time, stared with cold eyes at the reality nobody really worshipped Ares. the spartans didn't worship Ares. the spartan no. you know like nobody worships war it's mm. not that great once you're into it the uniforms are cool mm. the training's <laughs> excellent looking yeah, ripped the, is excellent but actually having to go off and all get you know turned into hamburger is not good the first interview i ever did dave uh no i think it was the second second interview i did Somebody said, like, do you, you know, you, you, you say you enjoyed your time in the military. Do you love war? And I said, I, I loved the edge of war. Mm. Like, uh, I, I think the reality of war is terrible. But at the peak of your training, doing things like patrolling and whether it's in the air or on the ground, where you have that edge of danger and yet really none of your friends are going down and you get to use all the things you've practiced. I don't know. It's super fun for a while. I'm 60 now. I don't think mm. I'd find it super fun anymore. No, but there's the wonderful example, you know, in the long war where I can't remember the name of the town that Aram Nestos and everyone have ended up in and they're training over winter. And, you know, his Spartan friend has them out running every morning in the rain and the cold. And yeah, ridiculously, they're all having fun. Because, again, it is that edge of that's a horrible experience. They're getting ready for a worse experience. So actually enjoy this while you can. Yeah, Hermione. That's uh, it. Hermione is, yes. a, is a town on – yeah, uh, my wife and I spent a delirious week and a half there. And that's uh, another example of the stupid way I write. I just went like, I'm going to have something happen here. <laughs> this is a great – I mean, it's a Hermione, great place. Hermione was a major city in the 5th century BC. Yeah. And I went for some runs while I was there, and I was like, yeah, definitely we're going to – I'm just going to bring this into the book. Because you can. 
And that's a good reason. But yeah, it captures exactly what you were just talking about. Now, to stay with Aramnestos, what is left of Plataea? How much archaeology is left? Like the way you describe, you know, his home, what's there at different periods, the loss of the family farm, the building of his new house, the, the settling there at sort of the end of the series as we've got it at the moment. You know, when's the new book out? What, August? August. Yeah, I, I, I hope I am not disappointing you, Dave, but I made all that up. That's I've fine, to... but where's it based on then? Like, you know, again, you are so experiential. What place gave you the vision of describing Plataea in such detail? Or is it a real composite of multiple Greek villages? The latter, but I'm going to tell you the whole story because that's just how I roll. Okay. Uh, I, uh, I've been to Plataea uh, a bunch of times. Okay. And in fact, I just ran a big reenactment there last year, a battle reenactment of the Battle of Plataea. And I can tell you about that if you care. And Absolutely, um, I have, yes. I have great, some great pictures on my website, and I can steer your listeners to a website called uh, Plataea2024.com because we're getting ready to run the next one. And in the gallery, they can find a lot of pictures of hoplites. Anyway, uh, so I've been to Plataea a bunch of times. What you see now, which is very interesting, is the Hellenistic city because Alexander rebuilt Plataea because he knew his quote-unquote ancient history. Because remember, the time of the Persian Wars was already ancient yeah. history for Alexander. Yeah. So Plataea had been razed to the ground by the Thebans. Mm -hmm. And there was a huge siege there in 430 where the Spartans came and laid siege to Plataea at the opening of the Peloponnesian War. It's a whole chapter in Thucydides, and it's mm. totally fascinating because, amongst other things, the Plataeans say to the Spartans, like, you are breaking your oaths. Mm. You swore to always preserve Plataea as the home of freedom of all Greeks. And, you know, there's the Temple of Hera. This is where the all-Greek armies meet once a year to run races and kill a bull to Zeus for the freedom of Greece from the Greeks, and you are betraying all of that from your politics. It's a good speech. Mm -hmm. I, somebody, and the other thing that fascinates me about that is that when the Athenians sent a, a garrison to hold it against the Spartans, they sent 440 men and 110 women. And wow, that 110. Someday I'll write a novel about it. But that the 110 women tell us a great deal about the actual functioning of armies. Those women aren't there as prostitutes those women are there to provide a reserve of skilled labor probably cooking maybe sewing there's all laundry there's all kinds of stuff that women bring to an army in before women became combat professionals and then when the garrison breaks out and they successfully break out and leave the spartans with their dicks in their hands as we used to say in the u.s navy when they break out all the women break out too so these women have Night movement capability, hmm. the uh, understanding of stealth, the understanding of organization, they have discipline. So this is a really interesting moment in Greek military history, this garrison that has selected volunteer women as part of it. Anyway, hmm. history lecture over. But in the aftermath of the siege, I doubt there was anything left of Plataea. The, okay. My memory is that the Spartans built a siege mound and then they... They built a sort of big fire projector. They broke down the walls, and I think they leveled the place. And then I think the Thebans leveled whatever was left another 20 okay. years later. So nothing of Aramnestos' world made it into the modern world. Okay. However, I have several archaeological surveys 
you know, I know you know your archaeology, so you're going to know that that these ruins just stack up. Yeah. You can't really destroy. Yeah. You can't really destroy a city. You can knock all the walls down, but an archaeologist can come back two thousand years later and go like, and that's the fifth century, and this is the fourth century, mm. and what the hell is this wall? No idea. Mm. Uh, that's a sheep caught from the Middle Ages. Anyway, so uh, there's an American dig there. Three or four different countries digging there from time to time, mostly in the old Acropolis. So all the terrain, this is my long-winded answer, the terrain is real. The, the description of the bridges and the river yeah. and the fingers off of the ridge and all that kind of stuff. All yep. of that. And and the terrain of Aramnesidros's boyhood life is real. Mm. So the way the ridge works, the location of his family farm really exists. Mm -hmm. The location of the Temple of Hera, the city gates, that's all real. The way his farm works and the way the tower, you know, there's a mm -hmm. there's a tower that he rebuilds and where his mm -hmm. father's smithy are. I made all that up from other archaeological reports spread across the whole of ancient Greece. Okay. Like I, I, I have a small library of these magazine size dig reports. And so the bronze smithy is from, I think, Macedonia in the fourth century and like i have to take what i can get it's just the most amazing composite yeah it is oh and let me just tell any of your listeners who care because i was just sitting with the cultural association of platea about three weeks ago and they said do you know we now have tourists who come looking for the tomb of of the hero of on the Plataea. mountain that's well, yes. i was thinking that as you were talking okay you know is there a tomb there is that's another thing somewhere else no, in Greece, I, I, and you I, just plonked I, it on I, the hill. Yeah, I, I did, and I'm sorry yeah. because apparently, and I say this with real feeling, apparently some veterans have gone there like wanting no. to go to the tomb, and Man, I'm I, like, I, I'm I can imagine I, that, and I can imagine you're going to need to tell them where the next best alternative is. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> I, I there are beehive tombs all over Greece, mm. but the nearest one that I know of is at Orchomenos, which is about 40 kilometers north of Plates and it is well signed. And I recommend they go there because it is right. beautiful. Because that's very important because, yeah, the descriptions – and, again, I've read too much stuff and done too many hours of work, but Aram Nestos's crazy sidekick who ends up becoming the priest there. Like the yeah. descriptions of what war's done to that dude, and I wish I could remember his name. Idomeneus? That's it, Idomeneus. Like that dude has been so traumatized by – Again, life as a slave and then war. He is just loopy enough to be the priest. Yes, that was that was kind of my that's kind of my point. I I just to make this personal, uh, Idomeneus is in some ways, in some ways, a uh, Somali kid living outside a refugee camp in uh, Kenya who uh, who was working as a silversmith's apprentice, who I met, and he was like seventeen. And virtually every bad thing you can possibly imagine had happened to him. Yeah. And yet mostly he smiled, ate his rice, and he was talkative and like interested in the world. And I was like, man, you're tough. He'd you know, somehow come out the other end, at least intact big, enough to keep going. Big guys in sunglasses with submachine guns think they're tough. And this 17-year-old, yeah. somehow, I was like, you should be king of the world if you yeah. think, you know, like... And he would say things like, oh, no, Buana, life is good. People should not forget that life is good. I'm like, wow, you think that. I honor you. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because we've talked a lot about 
uh, I guess the realistic draws that you're taking in the inspiration the the um, experiential factors the history the um kind of truth about humanity in terms of war um and it's obviously laden with your own experiences i'm wondering though is there a cyclical element do you you have quite a lot of books you've got quite a lot of characters do you start to see people filling in a box of a character that you've invented you can almost go ah you remind me of this character from this book i've written (laughs) you know tim that is a very fair if slightly evil question and i (laughs) uh and i'll give you my honest answer which is no i don't think so but only you could tell me that like uh really so again i'm going to go to what i tell young writers which is you have to love this because you're going to do it over and over again Mm. Um, and one of the things that my dad was a writer and he was also, uh, an academic and he taught, he didn't really try teach writing. He really taught criticism. And, you know, he used to ask himself and others, like, why, why did F Scott Fitzgerald really only write one good novel? Why, why do some writers write nine good novels and some writers write one and lots of writers write none? Why? And my answer, I have an answer for me, and that is that you have to really have passion or you're mailing it in. And I feel I can always tell when authors are writing it in, or mailing it in. So I am not saying he's my favorite author, but an author I go back to from time to time, uh, who probably has a huge following in Australia is Bernard Cornwell. Hmm. I don't think Bernard Cornwell mails it in. I think Bernard Cornwell gets interested in a new historical subject, gets passionate about it and 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 writes it down and I, I i like that that's how i think i'm doing it so what i try and do because i've known a lot of very interesting people tim uh, far more interesting than me is i i usually try and ruffle through my my like intellectual uh rolodex and go like all right this book's going to be about bob you know i remember bob bob was a guy in zimbabwe who did thus and such in my life and whatever and I'm going to make the focal point about him, or I'm going to make the focal point about somebody who's not like me or somebody who's just like me. And, um, I don't know. I, uh, like one of the reasons I enjoyed writing artifact space and it was so easy is that a lot of the people in artifact space are real people from my air wing and my carrier deployment, because a very famous science fiction novelist, my very favorite one once said like, you were on an aircraft carrier. That must've been just like being on a spaceship. And I went ding. Oh my God, what a great idea. Um, uh, I try and write different characters every time. And sure there's some sameness because I'm sure Dave could teach both of us about the process of leadership. And there probably aren't that many paths to being a good leader. So there's going to be a certain sameness to, to walking those paths, but at the same time, the world offers, and I'm not just talking cultural. I'll, I'll just give you an example. I believe that all of us have read any number of military history or military fiction books about basically the uselessness of young aristocratic officers. It, it, it's virtually a, a meme. It happens again and again. And yet I would argue that once you admit that a core element of leadership is social skills. And when you understand that the core of social skills is confidence and that superior social class gives you confidence that 
keeps you from having to make certain mistakes, it would seem more likely that actually aristocratic young men would make better officers. Uh, a, so I wrote a book kind of based on that because I wanted to say, like, why wouldn't this happen? In the 18th century British Army, and I love telling modern British soldiers this because it blows their minds, uh, officers all ate with their men. There were no officers' messes. You know why that was? Because they were actually aristocrats. They didn't need to separate themselves. Mm. They weren't they weren't the the sort of upper middle class officers of the 1840s and 50s who needed to draw a hard line. They were actual aristocrats. And so they just sat with their guys and ate like modern U.S. Marine officers. Mm. Um, there, there was no need for social distinction. The British Army of the American Revolution officers almost never wore any rank at all on their uniforms. And mm -hmm. that wasn't just because American snipers were bad. That was because everyone knew who the captain was. Mm. They were they recognizable need... to the people because they'd come from the same village and had always been in that position of authority and expectation that they would lead and do a decent job of it. And I'm not saying this is good, it but it, does is. Make for, it mm. just makes for an interesting novel and an interesting play. And I guess when I sit down to write something, usually the process is like this. I fall in love with some historical thing. Uh, the Greek Revolution of 1820, 1821. I, it, I, I ended up writing a fantasy novel about it, but I was originally going to write a historical novel. So Fine. which fantasy so, novel did that become? Cold Iron. Ah, okay. I've always sort of wondered where that trilogy you know, like which bit of the world it was inspired by, because I couldn't sort of pick what it was familiar to. That's yeah, good. At least I now know why I don't understand. It's Greece. It's Greece and Turkey, sort of in a fantasy 1821 with no Napoleonic with no Wars, which makes it all invalid. But just roll with me for a minute. Yeah. So, so, and I'm still on Tim. So what I do, Tim, is I, I find something that just totally fascinates me. Often it's just a story. And it's such a good story that I want to tell it myself. So then now that I have the story, I'm like, well, who are the characters? I know the story. I know the outline. I know the thing that happened. What are my people going to be like? And I'll do a ton of research. And by the way, I differentiate between reading and research. So often what I do is a ton of reading. Books already exist. I'm not doing original research. I know what an academic means when they say research. I'm just reading. But sometimes I do real research, by which I mean I'm like actually going through documents and stuff, trying to understand John Hawkwood or, you know, William Gold. That is a different level. Anyway, and then I, for whatever reason, and I'm happy to discuss a particular example, I go like, all right, this person's character is like this. This is how I'm going to write the character, and this is how he, he or she is going to interact with the other characters. So now I have some character arcs. And I need to lay them over the framework of the story I've already decided. And then I have a book. At least that's how I see it. That, and, and yet, having done all that, I'm very much a discovery writer, which means that like every day I go like, oh, how surprising. Aram Nostos is now no longer doing what I thought he was going to do. Well, I wonder what this is going to mean for my outline. I try and let them live anyway. All of this is my long-winded way, Tim, of saying I think they're all different. But I fully admit, as somebody who suffered through a childhood of listening to a professional English critic, that they must all be the same because they all come out of my head. Oh, I, I, I certainly didn't for a, for a minute want to want to suggest that. More just that it strikes me that the relatability in your stories comes down to the perceptiveness or truth in your observations. 
Yep. Because what you notice in things, everyone else reads and can see what you've noticed in a very profound way, I think, is sort of what I've learned from this discussion. Um, and I'm just interested in whether that starts to become cyclical in terms of clearly your life experience informs your writing. Does then your writing start to inform how you perceive real people? Yeah, Tim, I, this is an excellent point, and I fear you are correct. Um, okay. And uh, like, I'm going to be a bit of an airy fairy academic for a moment, and and talk about forming narratives. Like all of us do this, right? You you have two people in an argument, uh, two people having a divorce. <clears throat> Whatever actually happened, within about ten minutes of the two of them deciding they're splitting, each of them will form a narrative of how they got there. And uh, nation states do this too, by the way, on the path to conflict. And uh, I took a brief course on negotiation once. It was more like terrorist hostage negotiation, but it was fascinating. I never had to do it, by the way, but it was fascinating because it was kind of all about breaking those narratives. Mm. But yeah, I'm a writer, Tim, and you have got me pegged because I form narratives. I form narratives about people I just met at the gym. You know, like I work out next to them once and I have a novel in my head about who this person is. And that's crap. I don't know anything. I just formed a narrative. Um, no, but what would, it is, is taking everything you've observed and a random mix. Like it's the comment I used to make to 18 year olds when I was teaching. You are unique. What you're about to do isn't. But you put those two things together and it's still going to be unique. I, I can only hope so. But I think Tim's point is valid. Mm. That somewhere, somewhere in my writing career, I may have started to make the world fit to the narrative I was already forming. Is that is that what you're saying, Tim? A, a little bit, except that I think that there's so much truth in what you write and what you say that one could only one could not even help doing that. You, you know, you as pattern finders, the pattern finders that we are, <laughs> um, I think yeah. your your perceptiveness makes it so that it's probably not not that big of a mistake to do. <laughs> I, I think the worst, I won't say crime, but the, uh, my dad pointed this out to me. I mean, my dad passed away a couple of years ago, but he, he pointed this out to me very fairly. He's like, yeah, you've never really written a historical novel about the Peloponnesian war from the point of view of an abused Athenian woman. And why you know, like, you? no, because, because of the courage of, of survivors, because like actually refugees are a huge part of war and a real mm. part of our modern civilization. I can think of lots of, I could write heroic refugees. I could write unheroic refugees. Mm. It doesn't interest me as much as the direct participants, but dad has a completely good point. And what I'm saying to Tim is I pick, I, I'm still picking and choosing my stories hmm. because, because of my, my preconceived notions of what heroism are. And, and that that's on me, but that's also like, I mean, we're, we're way off in Airy Ferry now. Now we're on like what drives me to write and what would cause people to read. Right. Hmm. And, uh, and by the way, Dave, there is a very, very good uh, modern sort of sci-fi novel called American War uh, about um, uh, an American Civil War told from the point of view of refugees. Hmm. But American this Civil to me, it has to be someone in you – know, your big thing is leadership and growth in 
on the edge of this is cool and it's about to be awful. That's the common theme. That's clearly what you never have a complete answer to. And someone else is going to write from the perspective of how do people survive situations where other people turn their world upside down and they have to pack their world on their back. So different people are going to be led to different bits of the human condition because they can never get a complete answer to the question that fascinates them. That was such a good comment, Dave, that that's now what I'm going to say when people ask me why I don't write those other books. Well done. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I, I am not mocking you. I can, that was great. Thank you. Thank you for that. You're um, welcome. I, but this to me is, is that key thing. Like all writers eventually either repeat or get an answer satisfactory to move on. <laughs> I have never run out of book ideas and never run out of the desire to write them. And, you know, weirdly, one of the things I have barely written about is espionage, uh, even though that's what I kind of excelled at. Yeah. You're on the verge of in the tyrant series with the, you know, Stratocles and the surgeon that seems to be the closest you've got. Yeah. Well, Tom Swan, I don't know if you've read any of my Tom Uh, Swan. Got some, so, so yeah, another series I have to get to. But like, you know, again, as a guitarist and having a beautiful Stratocaster, one of the greatest joys was listening to the books of Stratocles while sitting there playing the blues. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I, I'm just going to say, like, I, I would actually like to explore. I have a whole bunch of books right here about the Venetian secret services and Venetian intelligence services in the 16th and 17th century. And uh, so I'm about to write a bunch of books exploring like the world of espionage in the Mediterranean at the time of the English Civil War. Because you know that there were English ships fighting on both sides in the war between Venice and the Turks. Wow. Um, and that that's because the uh, royalists lost the English Civil War, but they had a good navy. Yep. The navy sort of sailed away and didn't have a port anymore. And they all went like, well, where can we? get paid to anyway good times good is times. that many slightly, good stories is that slightly lighter than baldassari castiglione writing the book of the courtier or similar yeah. time period book of the courtier is i think 1504 okay and the uh venice's war with the the cretan war the war that i'm going to write about is actually 1650 oh wow significantly uh, lighter okay the, the longest siege in military history you know, it's funny because people always describe Venice in the 17th century as decadent, and I think they're full of crap and they should do more research. Venice, a city of about a million, fought the Turks to a standstill for 27 years. Wow. That would be like Australia facing China alone for 27 years. Yep. By the way, don't worry, Canada will be there for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Now I'm worried. <laughs> now. This has been fabulous, but we are nearly at the one and a half hour mark. Uh, could I invite you to come back in a few months when the new Against uh, All Gods book is out and the next Aaron Nestos book is out and come back and talk with us again? Dave and Tim, this was so good. And I really enjoyed the intellectual wrangling, which is frankly not how a lot of it. No, I, I, T- Tim is nodding, but also I like Tim's cats. I love cats. I, I've been watching Tim's cats come and go. Uh, I would be pleased, and I'm, I'm not making a pious mouthing. Give me a date, I'll come back. Aww, thank you very much for joining us, David. Thank you very much, Tim. And thank you so thank much you, for Tim. your company, <laughs> Christian. Anytime, Tim. Thank you guys both. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Blind Insights. 
If the ideas of this episode have inspired you, please consider subscribing and sharing with your friends. Do them a favour so we can make a better informed and connected world. Thank you to Solstice Podcasting for use of their studio. If you're interested in making your own podcast, find out more at solsticepodcasting.com.au.